1: and a secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside of this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers! I want the truth! You can't handle the truth!
0: The questions you always had. The answers you were never given. The place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Headline edition
1: July 8, 1947. make yourself at home. A big thank you to all our members for making our truth journey a reality. To listen to part 2 of tonight's interview and all of our material, just go to VeritasRadio.com and click on the subscribe button. You will receive your login immediately. And have you listened to Sanitas Radio yet? If you haven't, you're missing out. You cannot put a price on health. And Sanitas is doing for health what Veritas does for truth. Check it out. Go to SanitasRadio.com And with the seasons changing, this would be a good time to purchase MMS. You never know when you'll need it. And it's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Go to the Veritas store for more information. And to get in touch with us for member support, media inquiries, you want to be a guest or are a whistleblower. There's a link for you by clicking on the contact button of our website at veritasradio.com. And tonight's special guest is Dr. Michael Sala, an internationally recognized scholar in international politics, conflict resolution, and U.S. foreign policy. Michael has a Ph.D. in government from the University of Queensland, Australia. During his academic career, he was author and editor of four books focusing on international politics – Dr. Sala is a pioneer in the development of exopolitics, the study of the main actors, institutions, and political processes associated with extraterrestrial life. He is the founder of the Exopolitics Institute and the Exopolitics Journal. And to learn more about Dr. Michael Sala and his work, and purchase his new book titled "Kennedy's Last Stand: UFOs, MJ-12, and JFK's Assassination." visit his website at exopolitics.org. And directly from Captain Cook, Hawaii, I would like to welcome Dr. Michael Sala back to Veritas. Hello, Michael, and welcome back. How are you?
2: I'm well, Mel. Uh, Thanks for having me back. I'm looking forward to this interview.
1: It's my pleasure, and I finally read the book last night. Thank you for sending it, Michael. And I had my suspicions about what Kennedy had seen before, but I, I never, for some reason, never put... Kennedy and James Forrestal together as a link, as as a prodigy that Kennedy was. But first of all, so that the audience knows, what motivated you to put all of this together in in a new book?
2: Well, like many people, I've always been fascinated by the, the Kennedy assassination. Uh for me, uh I I was only five years old when it actually happened. And it was uh, really remarkable because my father came into the yard where I was playing and he told me that this American president had been killed and he began crying. So I had I'd never seen my father cry before. Um, but you know, it was kind of pretty memorable. I kind of felt like something really important had happened. There was something about this man Kennedy that that made my father cry, and and I was only five at the time, so obviously you know I was oblivious to it all and you know, not not having any kind of political knowledge at all at the time. But it kind of stuck with me. So I've always been fascinated by. Uh, by President Kennedy and his assassination. And uh, over the years, uh, as I've begun to do more research into this field of exopolitics, politics there have always been these kind of really interesting references to Kennedy and that uh, Kennedy may have been kind of trying to find out what was happening on this issue of UFOs. And so I began to dig and dig and wrote a few articles about finding out what, what had happened uh, in the latter portions of uh, his uh, presidential career. Uh, and then I kind of stumbled across uh, that Kennedy actually, in 1945, had made a trip to post-war Germany as a guest of James Forrestal. And, and that was really kind of opening the door to many insights and connections here because Forrestal was at the at the thick of things. So I was really kind of shocked when I realized that James Forrestal was actually uh John F Kennedy's mentor back in 1945 and that, and that Forrestal had really kind of opened the door to Kennedy learning a lot of things And that Kennedy uh, himself actually had a history in naval intelligence. So there's a lot of kind of historical connections here, which uh, really importantly are backed up by fact, that this is not speculation. There's uh, documents um, showing that, in fact, these uh, events did happen, that Kennedy was involved at a very high level. Uh, with some of the meetings that were deciding the the fate of post-war Germany and the future of the planet. And uh, Kennedy was right there and being told about it all.
1: And most people obviously know who John F. Kennedy was, but a lot of people may not know who James V. Forrestal was. For those who may not know, who was James Forrestal and why was he so important to this story?
2: Well, James Forrestal basically began life as a journalist, Uh, then he became an investment banker and became very successful. Uh, Along the way, he met uh, Joseph Kennedy, who was the father of John F. Kennedy. And both Joseph Kennedy and James Forrestal were both Irish Catholics. And they had a very similar history. They were both self-made men. And they were opposed to the kind of establishment. And the establishment tended to be kind of white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, uh, and so being Irish Catholics, uh, they were really kind of against the establishment. And and Joseph Kennedy and James Forrestal both became involved in Wall Street reform. So after the, the Great Crash, uh, the, the, the Great Depression uh, in 1930, when that all began, the Wall Street uh, crash, 29, 30. Um, so James Forrestal was involved in Wall Street reform, and along the way, he met uh John F. Kennedy, uh, sorry, uh, Joseph Kennedy. And so they became friends. Uh, Joseph Kennedy would eventually rise to become the ambassador to, for the United States to Britain. Uh, James Forrestal's career, uh, took on an interesting turn because he left Wall Street banking uh, to become uh, the undersecretary of the Navy uh, with the under the administration of Franklin Delano, Delano Roosevelt. So uh, Roosevelt was advised that James Forrestal was the person that would help the Navy prepare for this enormous war effort that was uh, just around the corner.
1: Did he so, have any military background, Forrestal, before this?
2: Uh, yes, he 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 served as a junior lieutenant in the First World War uh, okay. with with the, with the Navy, but he didn't rise to any prominent position. His his expertise was really in banking, and uh, basically being able to uh, help reform kind of outdated uh, financial structures, because that's where he made a name for himself in being able to implement reforms of Wall Street. And so, uh, you know, that's where he met Joseph Kennedy, who, Joseph Kennedy was the very first uh, chairman of the Securities Exchange Commission. So that's a very interesting historical connection between the, the, the two of them. But anyway, so, so Forrestal was n- nominated to basically help with this uh, reform uh, of, of the Navy so that it could prepare for this uh, enormous war effort that lay ahead. So he was appointed to, the under, uh, to this position of Under Secretary of the Navy uh, under R- uh, Roosevelt and then rose to become the, uh, the Secretary of the Navy in 1943, just as the, the war effort was taking off. And so Forrestal was at this very senior position in the uh, Navy uh, when, of course, many interesting things were happening around the world. Uh, And uh, he uh, was in the loop of some of the major decisions that were being undertaken. And it's just kind of historically, it's nice to point out that uh, at this time, um, you you had the LA L.A. Air Raid of 1942 in February uh where of course uh, it's well known that uh there was uh, a, a fleet of ships or aircraft that were unknown and that there was a kind of na- uh, there was a, a big artillery barrage launched against uh these unknown aircraft um uh, apparently according to one of the documents that or well, a couple of the documents actually released released through the majestic files um documents uh by uh George Marshall, who was Secretary of the War, to President Roosevelt, and from Roosevelt to Marshall and vice versa, uh, basically they acknowledged that there had been a crash of one of these vehicles, and the Navy had gained possession of this crashed UFO, and that it was basically extraterrestrial. In technology, it was an, they referred to it as an interplanetary vehicle, and that the Navy had it, and that they were passing on the information to the Army's counterintelligence corps uh, for further study. And that's when you actually had the formation of the uh, Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit, which is a, in itself a very important historical development. But it's important to point out that at that at the time of those events, uh, Forrestal was the Under Secretary of the Navy and only a few months later rose to become the Secretary of the Navy. So Forrestal was uh, certainly briefed about what happened, uh, that uh, the Navy had captured a UFO of interplanetary origins, and that a top intelligence uh, team was created by the Army to study uh, this uh, craft to find out whether it could be used for the war effort.
1: How do we determine that it was indeed a, an extraterrestrial vehicle and not perhaps a Nazi technology?
2: Well, um, at the time, uh, this, this, was, this had happened just after the declaration of the war in the Pacific. So there's no way that, that the Nazis could have had technologies uh, operational in the Pacific theater at the time. I mean, obviously, the Nazis were using uh, V-1 and V-2 rockets against Britain. Uh, that was really the extent. Of their being able to uh, launch uh, s- sort of any kind of aerial attack, uh, they were very proficient in submarine warfare and some of the German U-boats. So they were producing uh, a phenomenal number of uh, U-boats. Uh, the Germans were producing one, one U-boat a day. A day. Yeah. yeah, incredible. Um, but um, but nothing in terms of an, in, any aerial. Uh, capacity off the coast of uh, you know, California at the time. And, and of course, we have the documents that the majestic uh, people have been able to provide, uh, these memos from George Marshall to Roosevelt and vice versa, r- talking about these technologies as not being earthly in origin, that they were other uh, otherworldly in origin and that they were interplanetary. And that was why the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit was created at that time, soon after the la riot uh, uh air raids in 42.
1: there's so many reasons why jfk may have been assassinated that i could actually discuss it for for an entire day but some researchers say that it could have been because of his demands to access files and images concerning an et presence on earth you think this is possible
2: i i think it's very very possible i think uh what uh Kennedy experienced during the Second World War and what he had been told by Forrestal afterwards made him very familiar with this level of information um, and you know I mentioned the the LA uh, air raid well uh, what's interesting is that at that very time of the air raid uh, uh, John F. Kennedy was uh, with naval intelligence and so he was actually responsible uh, for helping. Uh, send relay world events information through the various naval uh, channels so that he could get to the right person. So, so John F. Kennedy was working in naval intelligence at the very time naval intelligence had retrieved, uh, crashed the UFO of interplanetary origin. Then, of course, uh, later on in 1945, he becomes a guest of James Forrestal in a post-war tour of uh, Germany and actually gets to see at first hand many of the captured Nazi superweapons, uh, which many people have come forward to confirm were far ahead of anything possessed by uh, the US or Russia, and in fact were extraterrestrial in technology, and we can talk about that a little bit later. Um, and, and then later on, when uh, Kennedy became a congressman, uh, he was being uh, briefed in uh, very select uh, meetings uh, by a number of kind of up and coming congressmen with very senior officials in the Truman administration, including uh, Forrestal, about what was happening behind the scenes, and and then you finally you have uh, the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit report. Uh, basically talking about the, uh, the the Roswell crash and uh, and basically it's referring to Kennedy receiving a briefing. So all of these kind of historical documents. Uh, All point to Kennedy being briefed about UFOs as being interplanetary in origin. So now it kind of makes a lot of sense as to why, when Kennedy became president, he would want to know about the UFO issue. He'd want to know, well, you know, what's been happening over the last uh, uh, decade or so. Uh, what what is the what is the the latest kind of uh, technologies that have been developed? Uh, what's the future? You know, what role does the president have? I mean, all of these things are things that Kennedy would very much have been interested in. So I think it makes a lot of sense to understand that we really can't begin to understand why Kennedy was assassinated if we don't look at his historical knowledge and associations with key figures involved in uh, the extraterrestrial program and why it is that when he began his uh, presidential term, he would have been naturally inquiring about what was going on with these extraterrestrial projects and trying to gain access to this. And this is where it gets, uh, this is where we get the kind of foundations for uh, what happened in um, November 63.
1: So you think that Kennedy actually learned about the ET presence during his time with uh, naval intelligence then
2: I think uh, during his time with naval intelligence, uh, he first learned about the ET phenomenon uh, as I mentioned he was he was there uh, when the when the air raid happened and the UFOs were recovered by the Navy. Uh, Linda Moulton Howe interviewed uh, two whistleblowers. Uh, She calls them reliable sources who basically independently said that it was when Kennedy was in a naval intelligence, that he first learned of uh, the extraterrestrial presence. So, and that period was in in forty in forty two. Then later on, Kennedy went on to become a PT captain, and of course, you know, everyone knows the history of of uh, him, um, you know, his ship being torn in two and him becoming a war hero, saving some of his uh, subordinates. But um, it really dated to that period in in forty two, and then of course we have. Uh, what Kennedy was exposed to when he was became a guest of James Forrestal in forty five in the post war tour of germany and it 's important to mention that Forrestal wanted to recruit Kennedy to his personal staff, so this wasn 't just Forrestal you know including Kennedy in his kind of uh, um, press call. it was Forrestal wanting to recruit Kennedy and basically wanting to give Kennedy. Exposure to what life would be if he was part of the the personal staff of of uh, James Forrestal, and of he course he was being groomed. Exactly, exactly, he was being groomed, and and Kennedy had to make a choice. He had to choose whether he would enter um, uh, the, the political arena, become a congressman, or become part of the personal staff of Forrestal. And of course, Joseph Kennedy, uh, jo- John F. Kennedy's father, uh, played an important role because. When John F. Kennedy's brother died, uh, Joe Kennedy Jr., when he died um, in an air raid uh, incident um, during the Second World War, then Joseph Kennedy Sr. wanted John Kennedy to enter Congress, to be, to, to go into politics. But if um, John F. Kennedy's father, uh, uh, so brother, hadn't died, uh, it's likely that Kennedy would have joined the personal staff of James Forrestal, and uh, his life would have been very different.
1: Certainly. in, in JFK, he, was, uh, he became a, a congressman, what was it, January 3rd, 1947. So by July 1947, he was in Congress, and that's when Roswell happened. Do you think that he was briefed about the Roswell incident being a congressman?
2: i think he I think he was um, basically uh, we do know that uh, Forrestal was uh, briefing a lot of congressmen up and coming congressmen, senior congressmen. About uh, sensitive national security information, so we know that that's an actual historical fact that that was happening. There are records proving that, and that Kennedy was identified along with, interestingly enough, Lyndon Johnson, as two up-and-coming congressmen who could b- basically be exposed to the most uh, sensitive national security secrets in the United States. Uh, so this is historical fact, uh, which you know it was surprising when I came across it, but it's but it's definitely something that uh, can be shown to be accurate. So. So Kennedy was already being briefed about very sensitive national security information. And, uh, you know, we go back to that 1942 incident off the coast of Los Angeles when that uh, UFO was recovered. We go to the uh, Nazi Germany um, and the uh, retrieved technologies uh, that had been uh, brought back to the United States under Project Paperclip. And also, it's important to mention Operation High Jump in 1946-1947 with Admiral Byrd when he launched that expedition, who was in charge of that expedition to Antarctica, uh, where they encountered um, a, a UFO force that basically was protecting uh, the Nazis who had relocated into that area. So This was all happening when Forrestal was Secretary of the Navy. So Forrestal was a friend of uh, John F. Kennedy's father. He had tried to recruit John F. Kennedy to his own personal staff and had taken Kennedy on a trip to Germany and had briefed him. And so uh, there's a lot of historical facts there that basically give us a lot of confidence that Kennedy uh, was briefed about all the national security information prior to and when he joined Congress. But the clincher for me was the Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit Report, which basically says that Kennedy did receive a briefing about Roswell. It's in there. It's in that particular report that Kennedy received the briefing from a senior um, Air Force uh, sec- f- from the Air Force Secretary that uh, Kennedy had been cleared to receive this. And, the, and, the, and if you look at that re- Interplanetary Phenomenon Unit Report, it, di- it just stated it as a matter of fact. It didn't say, well, this was a kind of security breach, that, you know, something had to be done to kind of ensure Kennedy's silence. It was just, oh yes, by the way, um, uh, John F. Kennedy, a congressman, has been briefed about the Roswell crash.
1: And, of course, uh, Forrestal took uh, Kennedy during his visit to post-war uh, Germany. And that's at the, uh, the time when Operation Paperclip was taking shape. What do you think Kennedy found out about Operation Paperclip and, and what happened later?
2: Well, uh, it's historical records that uh, Kennedy traveled as part of Forrestal's um, entourage to visit very um, secretive, Technological laboratories and facilities that have been captured from Nazi Germany. So for example, uh, in, in his book Prelude to Leadership, uh, that's John F. Kennedy's book that very few people know about, and I certainly didn't realise how important this book was. But this book, Prelude to Leadership, it actually describes Kennedy's trip in 1945 to post war Germany as a guest of Forrestal, and it describes you know what he what he saw, what he encountered. And you kind of get a sense of what was happening because he describes visiting these uh, Nazi facilities. He described visiting uh, facilities for the construction of the uh, uh, E-boats, which were kind of like the Nazi equivalents of the, of the PT boats, but kind of twice the size and more powerful. And also visiting the advanced submarine facilities that the Germans had in, in Bremen. Uh, where, as, as you mentioned earlier, uh, they could build, they were building a one submarine a day. It was just incredible. They had built, a, a, you know, over a thousand uh, submarines during the entire war effort. Uh, so Kennedy was visiting these, and he writes about them in Prelude to Leadership. Um, So those are the things that he could talk about. Now, obviously, there are other things that he saw that he couldn't talk about um, that were classified. And what's very interesting was that uh, Kennedy was a guest of Forrestal at the Potsdam meeting. Now, the Potsdam meeting happened in July um, of 1945 in Germany, uh, just, just near Berlin. And that was when the, main, the big three, that was uh, President Truman, uh, Prime Minister uh, Churchill, and uh, Soviet uh, Premier, the Soviet leader, it'll, it'll come back, that they were Stalin. I <laughs> don't know why I couldn't remember that. Joseph Stalin. Stalin was there, right. So, so Stalin, Churchill, and Truman were there at the Potsdam meeting, and they were deciding uh, the fate of post-war uh, Europe. They were deciding... Uh, what to do with the rest of the world? Of course, at the time, uh, the war in Japan was still going on. and uh, and that was when Truman first informed uh, Stalin and Churchill that they they had this new weapon called the atomic bomb and that they were going to drop it on Japan. So that 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 gives you a kind of an idea of the magnitude of that meeting. Uh, but the, also the other thing was that this was the time when uh, Truman gave the go ahead, for Operation Paperclip. His final decision to authorise Operation Paperclip came in uh, when he returned to Washington, D.C. in August of 1945. So that meant that when uh, when Truman travelled to Germany in uh, July of 1945, he saw the Nazi technologies, he was briefed about how these technologies are important for the United States in the future uh, by his top military advisors, including, of course, General Eisenhower, and uh, and so then he made the decision to authorise Project Paperclip. Well, at this very time when Truman is there touring uh, Germany, um, having access to these senior leaders and discussing uh, the future, or what to do with these German technologies, what to do with these German scientists uh Forrestal was there he was the secretary of the navy he was actually part of these discussions and and Kennedy was a guest Kennedy was uh Forrestal's guest and, and and obviously as a potential staffer for Forrestal Kennedy was being briefed about all of this information so Kennedy learned firsthand about project paperclip and uh he was uh listening or a participant or observer to these very high level meetings that were happening uh, involving Eisenhower um, uh, Truman Forrestal and other important leaders
1: well Kennedy also had his expertise on PT boats so he was able to to uh, look at the German technology and and you know uh, comment on the differences between both and it seemed that the weaponry was the same but the German boats were probably what double the the weight and and you know more sophisticated in many ways but about Truman was he really that motivated to start Operation Paperclip? Because, you know, did did he ever ask why the victorious uh, Allied powers would need the scientific expertise of the defeated Nazis?
2: Yes, exactly. I, I think that that would have been an obvious question. Why why would the the victor in a war need the technologies of the, of the of the vanquished? Why would why in the world would you need that? Well, we've had. Uh, Various sources, official sources as well, have, have basically confirmed uh, that uh, Nazi Germany had achieved a superiority in a number of critical areas uh, in aeronautics and rocketry and so forth, and that that made their expertise and the technologies that they had um, developed – Uh, indispensable to the United States in the future, and that uh, uh, Forrestal was actually one of the people that was very strongly anti-Soviet, anti-communist, and he really wanted the United States to take the Soviet threat seriously. Truman, I think, uh, was kind of a little more uh, trusting of Stalin and of of, of Soviet communism. Uh, Churchill, we know, uh, was very distrustful, and he agreed uh, with, with Forrestal that, uh, that that the Soviets couldn't be trusted. So Forrestal was part of this entourage or this group that thought that it was really important that the United States uh, could get the best and brightest of what the Nazis uh, had achieved in terms of their scientific expertise and repatriated it all to, to the United States. Um, there, there are various documents that support this. Uh, There's a a former CIA agent, Virgil Armstrong, that talked about some of the Nazi technologies actually being extraterrestrial in in nature, that they were kind of uh, very similar to the UFOs that were being sighted. Uh, uh, Also, Edward uh, Ruppelt the very first uh, head of the Project Blue Book, he also referred to the Nazi technologies as being the, the closest that could uh, match the kind of performance of UFOs. Uh, so definitely uh, Truman was persuaded by the military people around him that what the Nazis had developed during the Second World War was really indispensable for the future and really necessary to oppose what the what the Soviets were planning, and uh, and I think uh, ultimately Truman decided that he would go ahead with Project Paperclip, which definitely was a pretty difficult issue to approve, uh, you know, given what had happened during the war, uh, and so they began to kind of re, uh, repatriate all of the technologies and all of the scientists that they thought would help um, in these uh, kind of advanced technological projects. And of course, we know about uh, the repatriation of the V1, V2 rockets that they brought uh, hundreds of them over to the United States, as well as the, as the uh, rocket engineers like uh, Von Braun and so forth. But what we don't know are the more classified technologies they brought over, like UFOs that they took over to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base for, for further study.
1: I always wondered. this is kind of a side, uh, side note or side question, between Truman and Stalin, how did they determine which engineers, which scientists they would, you know, take each country?
2: I, I think that they basically just relied on the uh, recommendations of their military advisors and their scientific advisors. And they just kind of like uh, tried to, Uh, guess what would be the kind of technologies that they would need for the future. Uh, That uh, Both of them realized that uh, during the war that they had been kind of unlikely allies. But now that the war was over, Nazi Germany had been defeated. That I think uh, Stalin recognized, uh, certainly Stalin did, I don't know if if Truman kind of recognized that early, but uh, certainly he would have been aware of the possibility uh, that uh, that the United States and the USSR were were fated to be... uh, Uh, antagonists, and so they would really look at what could possibly be retrieved From Nazi Germany, that would help in the future confrontation. And of course, you know, both Nazis, uh, so both uh, the Americans and the uh, the Soviets at the time had nothing like the V V1 V2 rockets uh, that that Nazi Germany had developed. That Nazi Germany had also developed the the first jet fighters, like the Messerschmitt. These were technologies that neither of the major powers had. So you know, how they won the war uh, in in a sense, you know, as these technologies were coming online. Kind of shows you the, the kind of historical um, poor judgments uh, that that were made by by Hitler and his people, but uh, but certainly you know the the, the, the Nazi technologies uh, were far superior to what was possessed by the Allies, so that was they were the obvious targets for what uh, Stalin and Truman would want to repatriate to their respective countries.
1: And this is when the story becomes very interesting, at least to me, when. Truman appoints Forrestal as the very first u s Secretary of Defense. You would think that somebody with the qualifications he had would stay for a long time, but he lasted for what uh, you know less than, than two years and and two months before he died uh, is when allegedly he he resigned. but you think that Truman actually fired him, don't you think?
2: Oh yes, I think uh, when we look at uh, the events. Leading up to his firing, uh, it's very clear that uh, that there was a policy dispute, that there was some major policy dispute that led to a falling out between Truman and Forrestal. And I think it's uh, really important to point out here that that Forrestal was a minority. Uh, he was an Irish Catholic uh, in a national security environment that was dominated by kind of uh, people from the, uh, the Protestant community, if you like, or people who kind of came up through the ranks of the um, uh, the establishment, the kind of uh, New England establishment figures. Uh, these were the people that were kind of in the majority. So Forrestal was a minority, and he he was famed for actually being very kind of rude to people of authority. Uh, he was very efficient. He was very... Uh, at, attentive to details and a, and a really good organiser, which is why he became Secretary of the Navy and why he was chosen to be the first Secretary of Defence, which obviously was a monumental job in organising uh, to merge the different military services that previously had been very separate, to merge these into a unified command. Uh, and, and so this was why he was chosen for that j- job, that he was a really very bright, very astute man, who had really great organizational skills, very insightful. Uh, he knew all the secrets. The, the, he had been kind of briefed on everything that had happened. So he was the kind of natural choice to be the Secretary of Defense. He was the best man for the job. Uh, but he kind of came from a, from a, a, a kind of very different. A tradition to many of the others in the national security establishment, being Irish Catholic, and uh, being kind of opposed to the kind of Protestant establishment, if you like, and uh, he was a very, very much an egalitarian. In today, even even back then, uh, people saw him being kind of more socialist. He was an egalitarian. Uh, he believed in he believed in basically helping people. And uh, he was, uh, as I mentioned, he could be very rude to people of uh, important positions, but he was known to be very kind uh, with uh, people in the working class. So, so this was a man who was who was very different to the people around him. But nevertheless, he rose to become uh, the very first Secretary of Defense. Uh, that was created in uh, September of 1947, the Department of Defence, that unified uh, the Department of War and the Department of Navy and then created the the military services as we know now, the Navy, the Army, uh, the Air Force and the Marines. Um, Those were all created under uh, Forrestal's uh, leadership. He was in charge of that. So, of course, as the Secretary of Defence, he was responsible for ensuring that... uh, Everything to do with these services uh, was was done in a way that they could be funded for their various projects. And, of course, uh, we know about Operation uh, Paperclip, that uh, the Army had basically taken a lot of uh, the uh, German scientists to White Sands uh, missile base, uh, missile range, to basically uh, develop. The new generation of advanced rockets. Uh, that the Air Force had taken some scientists, or had uh, certainly taken some of the technologies to Wright Patterson Air Force Base. Uh, the Navy had their own facilities uh, for the um, for the study of these advanced uh, uh, aeronautical projects. Uh, so Forrestal was in charge of all of that, and uh, he was a, he was a man that uh, was certainly. Uh, up to speed on all of the the secrets that the various services had and the UFO secrets. And I think that what happened was that uh, eventually he disagreed with the secrecy policy. Um, And we know that there was a secrecy policy that was uh, implemented. Uh, This was something that eventually later was uh, uh, written about extensively by uh, Major Donald Kehoe in his books, Uh, his most famous book, or the one that I think is most important, was in 1945, where he talked about the flying saucer conspiracy. So in that book, uh, Kehoe basically mentioned the the silence group, the group of uh, senior military officials that believed in secrecy. And and he said that they were opposed by the the openness group, or, or whatever term he chose, that basically mentioned that that there was another faction in the military, in the Air Force, that wanted to uh, release this information to the people. And uh, Forrestal belonged to that group, but he was in a minority, especially back in 1949, when all of this was new still, very, very new. Forrestal was in a minority, and uh, we know uh, from historical records that he was uh, uh, regularly giving briefings to senior congressmen and up-and-coming congressmen, including... Uh, John F. Kennedy uh, about uh, various projects that were being run under the Department of Defense. So I think uh, it's very plausible that uh, what happened, um, and certainly this is something that Truman, uh, sorry, Forrestal describes himself in his diaries, that towards the end of uh, his kind of uh, term as Secretary of Defence, he began to be followed by very shadowy people. And so now we would recognise those as being the kind of mysterious men in black. But at the time, of course, uh, you know people were kind of wondering what was going on, what was happening with Forrestal. I think what, what was going on was that Majestic 12, the first Majestic 12 group that had been set up, um, that, that was something that had decided on a policy of secrecy. And that uh, essentially, Forrestal disagreed with that. And as he basically went on his own path, because he was very much a maverick in many ways, uh, he he really could buck the establishment. So uh, as a maverick, he basically was telling people that he felt had a right to know about this issue, and that was basically congressman. And he was telling these people, and there were other people in the, the Majestic 12 group that basically uh, you know, were wondering what was, what was he doing. And if, if the majority decision was to maintain secrecy, why is he going around briefing people? And so I think that that ultimately led to um, action being taken against Forrestal to discredit him to begin with. And so um, he began being followed, he began being harassed, phones being tapped and that sort of thing. And uh, eventually, uh, this kind of gave uh, tr- uh, Truman the means to be able to sack Forrestal as someone who was kind of like, you know, quote, losing it. That, uh, you know, the newspaper reports uh, were basically referring to Forrestal kind of suffering something like a nervous breakdown because all these people were following. But I think that that was how Majestic 12 basically thought that, that they could eliminate Forrestal first to discredit him. Uh, by basically leaking to the press uh, that that Forrestal was imagining being followed and so so forth, you know he was get, Forrestal was getting the Secret Service to check on phone lines that were being that he thought were tapped, but the Secret Service would say that they weren't tapped. So that kind of thing was going on, and eventually Truman, in March of 1949, uh, sacked Forrestal, and then of course. Uh, there was two months of where Forrestal was uh, basically committed to a medical facility. And, uh, you know, I can talk about that,
1: but... Uh, well, you know, I'm glad we're talking about this because this is this is definitely pivotal because I'm looking now at some of the players here. Let's just start with 1947. You know, we have Roswell and then Truman. All of a sudden, the creation of MJ-12, Majestic 12 happens. And we have to look at some of the people who were involved here. One of them that I keep looking at is Alan Dulles. For some reason, I keep looking at Alan Dulles as a culprit on on this, and then we can fast forward later and talk about the Kennedy assassination. But he was, you know, at one point, he wanted to, to organize a plot to kill Hitler. And that didn't happen. So obviously, he had ways of of organizing assassinations. Then he was involved with the OSS, which is the predecessor of the CIA. And then he became the uh, CIA director. So I wonder if Dulles was the one who started the proverbial ball rolling to get rid of, of Forrestal. What do you think?
2: Well, uh, Dulles was uh, someone that was very much involved in the the predecessor of the CIA, as you mentioned, the uh, and uh, under Wild Bill Donovan, who was uh, was the general who basically set up the OSS. uh, He was uh, Dulles was in the covert. uh, operations of that organization. So uh, then, afterwards, with the predecessor to the CIA, the counterintelligence group, uh, Dulles uh, was also working in that capacity um, in covert operations. Uh, so he was definitely a person who was very familiar with covert operations. And if uh, MJ12 uh, wanted to basically discredit and eliminate uh, uh Dulles would have been the person that would have been uh, one of the keys uh, to that process, and uh, and and so we do we do know that uh, that the CIA uh, was uh, very intimately involved with the running of UFO projects or maintaining the secrecy of uh, of UFOs. Uh, that kind of has emerged later with historical documents uh, being released. So at the time, I think it makes a lot of sense to basically identify. Uh, Alan Dulles as, as being part of that group of people, whether he was personally involved because there were other people um, uh, like Hel- Richard Helms, who were also part of the covert operations of the CIA at the time, um, that they also may have been kind of recruited into this operation to disperse this credit and then to remove uh, James Forrestal.
1: And why was Forrestal denied, I mean, we can we can ex- speculate here, and I think our speculation would probably be right at this point, why was Forrestal denied visitations from, from his family and, and even two priests?
2: Exactly right, yes. So, so Forrestal, uh, soon after he was sacked uh, by Truman in, in March of forty seven, he was uh, committed to the Bethesda Medical Facility, and uh, he was basically held there in... Um, incarcerated and what's very interesting uh, people who have uh, you know written about Forrestal, biographers and so forth uh, comment on this period as being very uh, very significant because essentially what was happening was that Forrestal was receiving a lot of a lot of visitors um, a lot of people were coming to see him including Truman himself um, coming to see him uh, but yet Forrestal was denied visitation rights you know that uh, people that uh, Forrestal wanted to see. Um, there were his brother Henry, uh, two priests, and also a personal friend. But these were four people that James Forrestal repeatedly asked to see, uh, but he was denied uh, access to them. But while he's being denied access to them, uh, all of these other powerful people from the establishment are visiting Forrestal. Uh, so I think it's, and, and one of those people, uh, very interestingly, was uh, Lyndon, Lyndon Johnson. Lyndon Johnson, yeah. That's So Johnson comes into the picture. So I think what is emerging here was that uh, there was a very powerful effort being placed on Forrestal uh, to basically um, do something, agree to something, which I think explains why it was that he was uh, not allowed visitation. But yet all of these other people from the national security establishment were allowed access to him. Um, And interestingly enough
1: uh, – He didn't care much about Johnson either.
2: He he didn't. He he hated Johnson. He thought Johnson was uh, someone that just kind of like – was just really out to aggrandize himself. Uh, But yet Johnson was given visitation rights. And another interesting person that was given visitation rights was Admiral Sewers. And uh, for those that uh, have uh, studied the m j twelve documents they know they 'll notice that Admiral Sidney sewers was one of the uh, m j one of the principal people on m j twelve actually one of the first people along with Forrestal on m j twelve so Forrestal and Sidney sewers were part of the the founding group of m j twelve and so of course you've so you've got uh, truman visiting you've got sydney sewers visiting um, and and then you have uh, Lyndon Johnson visiting all of these people. Uh, connected with MJ12, and I think what was happening was that they were trying to get Trum, uh, trying to get Forrestal to agree not to go down the path of disclosing, because I, I don't think that they really wanted to eliminate Forrestal. I think that they were really trying to pressure him to stop doing what he was doing. Uh, but I think Forrestal truly was a visionary, a very uh, idealistic man that believed that the world had a right to know this information and and I think he just didn't relent I think that they put a lot of pressure on him to kind of forego his effort to let the american public know the truth and when when they failed And when it became clear that he wasn't going to relent, and when Henry Forrestal, that's James Forrestal's brother, succeeded in being able to put pressure on the the hospital to give him access. He sued the hospital. Exactly. He he threatened to sue the hospital. He threatened to go public that uh, the hospital is denying him access to his brother, uh, to see his brother. And so uh, eventually the hospital uh, relented and gave uh, James Forrestal's uh, brother Henry, access. So Henry saw Forrestal four times in that last period, just before his uh, death, and uh, had arranged for uh, James Forrestal to, to be released to his custody. So the, the, very, the night before, or in, on the morning of the very day, the morning of the very day that Forrestal was to be released into the custody of his brother Henry, and uh, and Henry Forrestal said James was looking forward to being released and basically uh, resuming life. Then we have this this supposed suicide where uh, James Forrestal was supposed to have jumped from the 16th floor uh, from the Bethesda Naval facility to his death,
1: which I find very interesting because the day he the day be the uh, the he allegedly committed suicide. Uh, a priest was finally able to to arrive at the hospital, but they didn't allow the priest. Could it be because Catholic confession might risk a disclosing sensitive national security information?
2: I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, if you look at uh, what is it about uh, uh, denying priests the access to a, a patient who's supposedly s- suffering psychiatric problems? I mean, if if you look at all of the medical manuals on psychiatry. Uh, religious people are primarily some of those that uh, can help patients recover from serious illnesses. Um, and of course, uh, the, the Catholic Confession. Where the priest receives whatever information that the uh, the patient has that uh, is troubling them is actually has a lot of therapeutic value. So for the Catholic priests to be denied access was kind of like contrary to the prevailing opinion on psychiatry. Um, and so during the whole time uh, that Forrestal was committed or was was basically held at uh, at Bethesda Medical Facility, he was never given. A priest was never given access to him. And I think, well, if you look at well, why, why wasn't a priest given access, I think the, the logical answer is that, well, Forrestal would likely have shared national security information, uh, that was something that uh, the National Security Establishment didn't want to get out, and that uh, and that Forrestal could do this during the Catholic Confessional without there really being any kind of real consequences for him. So I think that's why they denied the two priests access to Forrestal.
1: And the day that he died, a priest showed up, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, uh, with all the commotion, didn't a, a hospital employee approach the priest and said, uh, Mr. Forsell did not commit suicide. Didn't that happen too?
2: Yes, exactly. There was a, uh, a, a marine, a warrant officer, I believe the rank was, who who basically. Uh, walked up to the priest, uh, you know, there was a lot of commotion, walked up to the priest, a very kind of senior-looking guy, very, very, uh, like in his late 30s, 40s, so uh, someone who uh, definitely looked like he had a lot of experience, and he, he just said to the, to the, to the priest that uh, uh, James Forrestal did not kill himself, this was not a suicide. Um, and then he just, you know, people were all around, and they were kind of listening, and so he just kind of looked around, and, and he had, and he left. Uh, but uh, the priest kind of relayed on that information that yes, uh, someone who uh, worked at the hospital uh, with a lot of experience was basically giving him the you know the information that this was not a suicide that this had been a murder.
1: And I'm just looking at it from a devil's advocate perspective. I hate doing this, but I'm trying to look from the other side, uh, you know, as for the why. And this seems to be a, a case of loose lips. Sink ships, and after World War II, you know, we have this technology, we have this knowledge, we have MJ12 investigating Roswell, and Forrestal wanted to talk. Wanted to, wanted to tell the world, could it be that all these people were concerned because others, you know, the Soviets would actually learn the technology and use it against us?
2: I, I think you're right, Mel. There's a there's a lot of arguments that can be used to basically say that uh, you know Forrestal had no right. Uh, to go out and basically start giving unauthorized briefings to people uh, on very sensitive national security issues at a time when uh, you know, America's future lay. Uh, you know, It wasn't quite clear what was going to be happening. Of course, the Soviet Union was uh, developing their own stockpile of atomic weapons and so forth, so it was a very dangerous time. So why release sensitive national security information that the enemies of the United States, uh, such as uh, the Soviet Union, could possibly use um, against them? Uh, so certainly that, you know, that's a valid argument to make. Uh, but what I will say in Forrestal's defence is that He was the man on the ground. I mean, he knew all the facts. You know, you, I, you know, we're going on kind of a very limited data pool. You know, we're going on uh, the limited information we've been able to receive from, you know, leaked classified documents or FOIA information or whistleblowers or contactee experiences. So we kind of have, you know, a part of the picture. And, you know, I think it's, you know, it's it's as good as it can be. But I think the important thing was that Forrestal had the whole picture. And he had the whole picture of what was going on. And, and I think his background and his kind of commitment to doing the right thing. And, and I think it's, what's important here is that uh, Forrestal was very much an egalitarian. Um, and he was not comfortable with the kind of elitist culture of the Protestant establishment. And and he saw the secrecy surrounding UFOs and the extraterrestrial technologies as really being something that this kind of elite establishment would take advantage of and basically aggrandize themselves, uh, not share this information with the common man. And basically create what we now know today to be like a technologically segregated society, where we live as as you all well know, according to Richard Dolan, you know we have a breakaway society, and we have kind of uh, the white world or the open world where we have iPads, iPhones, and all of that, and we think that's fantastic. But that's kind of like just a shadow of what this breakaway society possesses. And I think Forrestal was was very prescient. He recognised that this elite Protestant establishment, that that's exactly where they were going. That's what they wanted to do. And he was opposed. He didn't agree with it. He knew what what they planned to do. And I think history uh, has proved Forrestal right, that not only was he an idealistic man who really wanted to share uh, what was really happening with the world, uh, but he also recognized that uh, there was an elite establishment culture operating here that was going to take advantage of these te- technologies, keep it to themselves, not share it with the rest of the public, and basically use it as a means to lord themselves over the rest of society, and that I think is exactly what has happened.
1: Definitely, and Henry Forstall, uh, Forstall's brother, he was supposed to show up, and just uh, hours before he was supposed to show up and, and take custody of his brother he, he commits, quote unquote, commit suicide. For some reason, I read something that somebody, a journalist or somebody related to Forrestal had given an interview.
2: Yes, yes. One of the biographers uh, was able to interview. One of the biographers uh, who was uh, doing research on James Forrestal uh, was able to interview Henry Forrestal. What did he say? Uh, Well, uh, Henry Forrestal said that uh, this was uh, clearly a case of murder, that uh, James Forrestal was in good health. Uh, He uh, was of sound mind. He was looking forward to his release. He was looking forward to a very productive uh, life um, after his uh, stint as Secretary of uh, Defence. So Henry Forrestal was convinced that uh, this was murder. Because he had spoken with James uh, just before his release uh, just just before he was supposed to be released. he was you know, finally given access and visited him four times. So he was the man who was best able to kind of uh, give an, any insight into James Forrestal's uh, mindset, and he was saying um, James was really ready to be released, and he was uh, looking forward to it. And so uh, Henry Forrester was convinced that it was murder.
1: And I look again at um, Lyndon B. Johnson, and for some reason I think also of George H.W. Bush, who probably has nothing to do with this story, but it's interesting how these people had something to do with with Kennedy. Uh, We could speculate about uh, Bush's involvement with the assassination. We could speculate the same about uh, Lyndon Johnson, but they both became vice presidents. Uh, You know, doesn't that make you suspicious that all of a sudden this man, Lyndon B. Johnson, goes see Forrestal and then eventually becomes Kennedy's running mate when he actually wanted somebody else? There was, I forgot the actual name, but there was somebody else with a similar background to Kennedy who he wanted to be vice president, right?
2: That's right. Yes, that's Stuart Symington, who was the uh, first secretary of the Air Force.
1: Is he five Symington's father or was he?
2: Ah, oh, that's an interesting connection. You know, yeah, um, uh, you know, it may be. I, I just don't know, but that that may be an interesting connection. Yes, uh, it could could be.
1: At any rate, at any rate go ahead. Go ahead uh, with the, what you were saying.
2: So uh, yes, uh, so Stuart Symington was someone that. Uh, uh, John F. Kennedy wanted him to to run as his vice president, um, but he realised that uh, in order to be successful to win the Democratic nomination, he needed to have the support of the southern states. And so he thought the key to getting the support of the southern states was to get Lyndon Johnson on board. And so he kind of, in a perfunctory way, if you like, offered Johnson the uh, you know the vice presidential uh, running slot, you know, thinking that well, there's no way he would uh, accept why you know why would the why would the uh you know the ranking you know the the he was the in- the, the leading senator at the time, you know, the, the the ranking senator in the uh, Senate, why would he accept this position to be the running mate of a junior senator? But he did, and that kind of shocked Kennedy. But I think the interesting thing about Johnson was, and I think that's what you mentioned earlier or alluded to earlier, was that um, uh, he had earlier had an association uh, with this kind of covert group that you know, related to the CIA, as did George Herbert Walker Bush, uh, and with uh, in the case of Linda B Johnson, Johnson was connected to the m j twelve group and, uh, and and we know that Johnson was being briefed along with Kennedy about very sensitive national security information, including UFOs, uh, but that Johnson was part of this group of people that were leaning on uh, James Forrestal when he was in the hospital that uh, Johnson went along to try to add his two cents into whatever it was that they wanted to get uh, Forrestal to agree to but what that what that visit shows to me or demonstrates to me is that because uh, Johnson was an uninvited guest he was there to basically read the riot act or to really put pressure on Forrestal to accept something that Forrestal was uh, not willing to and that to me suggests that uh Johnson was very early on part of the MJ12 operations that he had become an asset he had become recruited uh by MJ12 uh in a in a way it's almost like uh, i think the, the way to see this is that um it's interesting that uh Johnson and Kennedy were both the two congressmen who were being given briefings uh by senior Officials, including Forrestal and other senior officials in the national security establishment, um, and in a sense, it's almost like uh, Forrest, uh, It's almost like Kennedy and uh, and uh, and Johnson kind of represented two factions within MJ Twelve. One faction, we might call it the you know the, the faction wanting openness and disclosure, was headed by Forrestal. You know, Kennedy was their man. Uh, the other faction, uh, which wanted secrecy. Uh, it was tied in, uh, with, with this group that were, you know, that was associated with Alan Dulles and the covert operations assassination and so forth was, uh, was allied with Johnson. Uh, well, Johnson was allied with that faction. So it's almost like you have these two congressmen, Johnson and Kennedy, whose fates intersected at that in that critical period after the Second World War, when all of the UFO extraterrestrial information was being released. And it was almost like uh, they were fated to go different paths, even though they were given a a choice.
1: And I think of, uh, again, going back to Johnson and the similarities between he and George Herbert Walker Bush. You say that he was a senior senator. Why would he accept to be the running mate unless he had his sights on the presidency, and perhaps he would take over prematurely, as he did. The same thing with uh, Bush Forty-One. I don't think Reagan really wanted him as the running mate. I think he was coerced to have him as the running mate because he did not. Uh, he was not selected uh, to be the the candidate. But what happened? Just not even two months after Reagan was uh, took took office, you know, Reagan almost died. Bush knew that that was the only way that he could become president. So, you know, these two people, as you say, they're from one faction and the other. But we have to take a one and only intermission. But when we come back, I want to discuss where Eisenhower was. Was he one who wanted transparency and disclosure, or was he on the dark side trying to keep things hidden? I'm a little bit unclear of this because I think, even though he had that speech, his uh, his farewell speech stating that beware of the military industrial complex, wasn't he part of it? Wasn't he one of the engineers of creating the entire military industrial congressional complex hydra? But we'll get your answer on the other side. Michael, how can people buy this uh, new excellent book?
2: Uh, they can go onto to Amazon.com and they can find it there, uh, Kennedy's Last Stand. Or they can go to my website, exopolitics.org, and they can find the links there to uh, read some of the material and to go ahead and get the book.
1: I'm here with Dr. Michael Sala, his new book, Kennedy's Last Stand Eisenhower, UFOs, MJ 12, and JFK's assassination. One more hour to go, and we're going to dig deeper, much deeper than we discuss right now. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. Thank you for listening to the first segment of this very important interview. To listen to the rest, go to veritasradio.com and subscribe. You will receive your login immediately. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, we'll be right back. Enjoy